looking at uh, some of the last events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So we're going to see uh, over the next, what is it, six, seven weeks, something like that, leading up to Easter, uh, we're going to see, you know, his, uh, his trial, um, you know, before Pilate, and the actual crucifixion and all that fun stuff. Tonight, though, we're gonna we're gonna be a little before any of that happens. We're gonna be in the garden. Uh, Matthew 26, uh, verse 36 is where we're gonna pick up. I almost went back and and wanted to do a message on uh, the Last Supper because that's uh, any of you that have been around here a while, you know that's my jam. I I, I love. Uh, how the Passover ties into the Last Supper and what communion is and all that. But there's some heavy events that have just happened where we're picking up tonight. They just had the Last Supper. Jesus, he washed his disciples' feet. Um, he identified Judas as his betrayer, although no one else caught on to it but he and Judas. Uh, Peter claimed that he would never, ever deny Jesus. We love to point that out, but if you read it carefully, all the other disciples were like, yeah, me too. Right? They, they all got in on that action, and they all uh, they all fall on their faces, as we'll see. Um, Jesus explained to them that, you know, the Jews had been celebrating Passover for thousands of years, and really, uh, during that Passover, it wasn't about the lamb. He is the lamb. It wasn't about the flesh of that lamb. It was his flesh. It wasn't the blood on the doorpost. It was his blood. Right? He explained how all of that, uh, you know, it's his blood that saves us. And after all of that, it says that they sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. So they walk out of the city out of the upper room, out of the city, through the Kidron Valley. Now, Judas had left a little bit earlier. He walked the opposite direction. But they walk out of the city, cross the Kidron Valley, and they come to the Mount of Olives. And at the base of that mountain is a garden called Gethsemane. And that is where we pick up. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, we come tonight uh, before you and just pray that uh, you would make our hearts ready to receive the truth of who you are and be changed by it. Lord, even those of us who've known you for a long time, we can grow callous and, and refuse to be changed, refuse to be transformed by your word. Lord, we want that to change tonight. Make our eyes open, our hearts open being changed by you. And as we learn about the anguish that you went through, Lord, that uh, we would be not only thankful for it, but we would understand your love for us a little bit better because of it. We pray these things in your holy name. Alright, so Matthew 26, verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And uh, that name, it just means it's the place of the olive press. That's what that word means. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So 
which takes them to a place called the Place of the Olive Press. So the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not like a vegetable garden. It's, they grew olives. It was olive trees. That's what it is. It's a grove of olive trees. And today, you can still go over to Israel, and at the base of that mountain, you'll find several. There's actually three different um, olive tree uh, gardens that all three claim to be the Garden of Gethsemane. But, you know, it, it was one of them, right? It's one of those at the base of that mountain. So it's the place of the olive press. The way that olives were, were harvested or take, you know, turned into olive oil, the, the, the most valuable thing that you can get from an olive, is they're placed between two stones uh, and, and crushed. This fruit that is good for something becomes even more valuable when it is crushed under this press. And uh, those of you who have been coming on Wednesdays for a while, you know, we just finished preaching through the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says this. It says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was what? He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. So before the Spirit, the oil, right? Because in the, in the Scripture, uh, oil almost always is a picture or representation of God's Spirit. Before the Spirit could come, before that oil comes, it has to be a crushing. And so Jesus, rather than climbing up the mountain to get this beautiful view of, of Jerusalem, he stops at this place known for crushing. You know, we love the mountaintop. This is the same mountain that Jesus uh, ascends into heaven from later. Right? Uh, we love the mountaintop, but we'd rather skip the crushing valley before that, right? We like to go from mountaintop to mountaintop. That's not his plan here, though. Matthew 26, verse 36. says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, uh, the place of the olive press, or the place of crushing, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Uh, what were their names? Anybody know? James and John. Right? That's, that's, he's got Peter, James, and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Remain here and keep watch with me says he's deeply grieved and there's there's several different words in the Greek that can be used for that that type of emotion Matthew here uses the strongest one he can find it describe it describes like deep grief like the heaviest form of depression Isaiah 53 verse 3 says that he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in your lowest place, Jesus knows how that, how you feel, right? He can't just kind of sympathize with you. He's been low, as low as anyone can get. And so at the time of his anguish, uh, who did he want with him, right? He takes all the disciples except for Judas. 
But then he says, okay, the rest, you, you guys all sit here. And he takes three with him. His, his inner circle. These are the same three. They were with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from, uh, from the dead. They were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah about his own death and resurrection. In his hardest times, he wants his closest friends with him. Verse 39, it says, And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, of course, that cup, he's talking about, uh, you know, he knows what's coming. He's talking about his own crucifixion, but, but there's some significance to the, the, the wording he uses. Like I said, I really wanted to go back and do the whole Last Supper thing, but I'm just going to give you a, a quick jet tour through uh, the Passover. That's what they were doing, taking the Passover Seder. And in this meal that celebrates God bringing uh, his people out of bondage, out of Egypt, setting them free, delivering them from death. There were four cups that you drank from in this ceremony, if you want to call it that. And the first was the, the cup of sanctification. And it, and it, you know, it, you would say, uh, it basically meant, I will bring you out, right? He, he brought, up, brought them out of uh, bondage. The second is the cup of deliverance or the cup of plagues. He says, I will deliver you. The third is is the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption. They sometimes call them different things, but uh, it, it translated, I will redeem you. And in, in the scriptures, when you read about this, this sequence of events, they drink three, there's the third cup, and then it says they sing a song, right? They sing some hymns. And in the Passover Seder, you would, after the third cup, you would sing some of the Hallel Psalms. These are the Psalms of talking about God's salvation. And then you would drink from the fourth cup. The cup of praise or the cup of salvation. But it translates, I will take you for my people or I will bring you to myself. I will bring you home. If you're familiar with this story, before they get to that cup, Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until we are together in the kingdom. He doesn't drink that cup because, well, he hasn't brought them home. Right? They're not there yet. Now, there's a fifth cup. There are four cups that are part of the ceremony that you drink from, but there's a fifth cup. The, it's, uh, sometimes they call it Elijah's cup or the cup of wrath and it's, it's sat separately, no one drinks from it and the idea is that one day Elijah is going to show up at your Passover and tell you that the Messiah has come and it's time for God to pour out his wrath against all wickedness right? justice is finally going to be served and every year they, you know, the people pray that that's what's going to happen I think when Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup 
path for me. He says, if there's any other way, and of course there isn't, if there's any other way that sin could be dealt with once and for all, let's do that. Well, there isn't. There's, there's only one way, and that was for all of God's wrath against all of sin to be poured out on someone. And Jesus decides he, he will drink from that cup. Not my will, but your will. But here he is. He's facing uh, the most difficult time in his life. He's under more pressure than any of us will ever experience. And he's struggling with it. He says that he's as deeply depressed as you can get. He's deeply troubled. He's overwhelmed. He's in darkness. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. James says that if, if we lack wisdom, Talk to God. He wants you to understand. He wants you to have wisdom. Paul says if you're anxious, pray. Because he wants to give you the peace that only he can give you. In the 55th Psalm, it says this, verse 22, he says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Not he will give you everything you ask for, and it will all be okay every time. But he will sustain you. And get you peace. And so Jesus, in his dark times, in his depression, in his anguish, he prays for uh, something to be learned there. Right? Well, go on. Matthew 26, verse 40. He says, And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. <laughs> he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So they're giving into the flesh. They're sleeping when they should be praying. And I don't know if you've ever tried that. If you try to you know, say your prayers before you go to bed, you'll just fall asleep. That's what will happen. Or you go, okay, well that didn't work. I'm going to say my prayers in the middle of the day when I'm wide awake and then You'll start thinking about everything but what you should be praying about. You ever run into that? Like, like you have the most bizarre evil thoughts when you're trying to to pray. That's that's our flesh warring against you. Verse forty-two says he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, "My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done." And again he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Now, when you're tired and you need to stay awake, should you, like, get really comfortable or get moving? Right, you got to get up and move around. Right? Jesus told them, he says, he doesn't just say, wait here. He says, hey, you three, my, my closest friends in the world, keep watch. And he gives, it's an active command. It's what you tell a sentry to do, right? And, uh, a, a military guard. Now, I, was, I never served, uh, but I, I went and looked at, you know, what our military standards are for sentry duty. And there's a lot in there, more than I realized. But here were the, some of the first 
things on the list, uh, if you're doing sentry duty, it says that anything in your sight is your responsibility. Right? You're not just guarding this door. If you can see it, you are responsible for it. It says, uh, walk your post with purpose. Be on the alert, no hands in your pockets. <laughs> you know, when we're in, in dark times, uh, we, we tend toward isolation and inactivity. Right? When you're feeling down, I just want to be alone. I want to have a drink. I want to uh, watch my show. I want to not think. I want you know, to be alone. And the Bible says, the, the very first thing that the Bible ever says is not good. When, when we get the creation account back in Genesis, the very first thing that God says is not good is for man to be alone. Because their flesh wants what's worse. One of the best things that you can do when you're depressed, when you're uh, in a dark place, is to get up and to go serve someone else. The Bible teaches that. Modern psychology has, has shown that, you know what, there's actually chemicals that are released in your brain when you help somebody else. It's the weirdest thing. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about when he said to do that. But anyway, so we've got uh, the military says, anything in your sight is your responsibility. Right? If you, if you can do something about it, you should. Uh, walk your post with purpose. Report everything to your superior. That's, that's what prayer is. And lastly, only quit when you are relieved. Now, every position is temporary. But don't give yours up before it's time. Now, someone will come along and take over for you. But in the meantime, you stay active. Anyway, so the Peter and James and John are not staying active. They're giving into their flesh. Verse 44, it says, And he left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. You know, it's not unspiritual uh, to make the same request to God more than once. I've heard people say that, you know, if you pray it more than once, then you're not praying with faith. I'm like, well, Jesus prayed more than once. I'm pretty sure if it's okay for him, you know, I'm not more spiritual than he is. It's okay, if it's okay for Jesus, it, uh, I think it's okay for us. But keep that line of communication open is, is the big thing. Uh, verse 45 then, uh, says, Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now look, he's saying this stuff. They can't see. He just knows, right? This is what's happening. He knows they're coming. But he's not saying, get up. We need to run. Or get up. It's time to fight. He just says, the time is at hand. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by 
a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, there are uh, multiple accounts of, of this stuff, and John, uh, the Gospel of John, gives us this little detail. John 18, verse 3. It says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now we, some people say, you know, Ju- uh, Judas was trying to, like, get Jesus to take action, or he didn't really believe Jesus who, was who he said he was. We don't really know, but here's what we do know, is Judas was like, we're going to need a lot of people to capture this one guy. Now, he knew that whether he believed he was the Son of God or not, he knew you couldn't take him with one person. You couldn't take him with two. He gets a Roman cohort. That's 600 soldiers. That's one-tenth of a legion. Plus officers and priests, uh, officers from the priests and Pharisees. So he's got a small army to capture one guy. Do you really think he didn't think Jesus could do something? Matthew 26, verse 48, it says, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. There's a lot to be learned just from that one verse. That it wasn't like, uh, you know, we're going to walk into this garden and it will be obvious it's the guy who's seven foot five and glows. Right? He has a halo. No, he, he says, you're not going to be able to tell him apart from anyone. Because there was nothing about his appearance, nothing about his, his uh, mannerisms that made us think he was anything but a, but a man. But there was something different about him. So he goes and he identifies him. He says, I'm going to identify him with a kiss. Verse 49, immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, I mentioned that the Gospel of John gives us some more details. And I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but there seems to be a little bit of a rivalry between John and Peter. John 18, verse 10, John goes out of his way to say, Simon Peter, then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. John loves to point out things like later he says, you know, or earlier in his gospel he, he talks about how Jesus would talk to the one he loved most, referring to himself. Or when when uh, at the resurrection he talks about how you know he and Peter both ran to the tomb, but the one that Jesus loved most made it there first. Just saying, you know, he likes to throw out that he, he, he had a little bit of a competitive spirit when it came to Peter. And he makes sure to let us know that it's Peter that cut this dude's ear off. Luke 22, verse 51, 
gives us this little detail. It says, but Jesus answered, right, when he sees this happen, Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, that may seem like a small thing. This is, this is Jesus. He's walked on water. He's raised people from the dead. He's cured the blind and the sick. And but this is the last miracle we see Jesus do. And I think it's the miracle that Jesus is still having to do today. He's still having to go around and clean up where foolish disciples have swung their sword. The Bible tells us that we have one offensive weapon in our spiritual arsenal. It's, it's the sword of the Spirit. And I think he's still having to go around and clean up where foolish disciples have, have swung their sword in anger and hurt people. You know, if you're going to use your Bible to really give someone a piece of your mind, don't. That's not what it's for. Uh, you know, when I find myself arguing and, and fighting and debating it's a good indication that I've been like Peter, I've been asleep uh, spending, I've not been spending time in prayer and devotion but I can uh, I can cover up that lack of, of piety with some outward activity right? I can make it seem like like I'm being spiritual because I'll, I'll overwhelm someone with my knowledge and that'll show that'll, that'll show and unfortunately Jesus is still having to go around I think today and, and heal people that we've hurt with, with our uh, with our knowledge the last, the last miracle Jesus performs before the crucifixion uh, is to heal someone hurt by one of his followers I think that's important Anyway, we'll read on. Matthew 26, verse 52. It says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, you all know me. Anytime there are numbers, I have, to, I have to figure it out. Right? Those, they intrigue me. So a legion is 6,000 soldiers. And Jesus says, I could have 12 legions. Right? So that's 72,000 angels. Now in, in Kings, we know that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So, 12 legions of angels, if you do the math, they could kill 13,320,000,000 people in a day. I know it's, a, it's like a silly number, right? That's more than any, it, that's more than 
the number of people who have ever lived on earth at any one time. There's never been 13 billion people on earth at the same time. Right now we're about 8 billion. And that's the, the highest the population's ever been. They estimate, you know, over the years there's been 100 billion or whatever. Who knows? None of that matters. I just thought it was really interesting. Uh, he, the point is, right, he says, you really think I needed you to swing your sword? You, you really think that I need you to defend me? You know, the Bible tells us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you, for your faith, right? To, when someone asks you, why do you believe what you believe? It's good to be able to answer that question. But don't think that you need to defend God. And you don't have to be able to answer every question someone gives you. He tells you to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. What God has done for you. What He's done in your life. What you do know. And don't pretend like you can answer every single question. Know His Word and, and speak it in love and then trust that He'll do with it what He wants. Okay. Alright, we're going to read on. Verse 54. And we're going to wrap it up here shortly. It says, How then... Will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, uh, teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then all the disciples did what? left him and fled. All the, we love to point out that Peter said he would never deny him and then look what he does. All the disciples left him and fled. Verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So Peter, will at least give him a little bit of credit, he tries to stay true to his word, uh, and he still follows from a distance. Now we're told in one of the other Gospels that John also follows, uh, and John stays closer to, to Jesus. He doesn't follow from a distance. He stays with him, uh, following him into the high court. And he actually is the one that goes out of the court and goes and drags Peter in to sit in and, and listen in. But Peter is hes not hot like John, following as close as you can follow. And he's not cold like the other disciples who just headed for the hills. He's lukewarm. Right? He's trying to he's trying to follow from a distance. And Satan is really, really working hard on Peter. He's giving in to his flesh. He's lashing out in anger. And now he's compromising. Right? Like, how far can you get from Jesus and still be considered as following him? Everybody has a different idea of what that what that line is. 
And very often when we get questions like, is it okay for a Christian to fill in the blank? Whatever that thing is they're asking, they're basically saying, how far from Jesus can I get and still be actually following Jesus? You know, what's the line? What can I get away with? We're going to learn more about how uh, the devil is working on Peter and what's going on uh, in the tri- that trial. I think actually next week is going to be the trial that we're going to cover. Um, but until then, I just want you to ask yourself this. In your darkness, in your struggles, in your garden, whatever you want to call it, You tend to abandon your post and try to follow from a distance? Or do you lean in and try to try to get active? Which is it? One has gotten you where you're at, and one could change where you're at. Let me pray for you. Well, we thank you this evening that that you inspired these men to write these things down, that we can understand what was in your heart as you were approaching the cross. We know you didn't just get up one day and think it was a great idea to go and suffer, but you really struggled with this and and knew that knew the pain and the anguish that awaited you, and yet you still you still went forward and paid for us Lord, we thank you that we can see that you, the perfection personified, still understands what depression and, and darkness and struggles are like. Lord, we pray that we can be more like you, that we can choose the Father's will over our own. We pray that, Lord, that we would not try to follow you from a distance. But that we would walk closer with you tomorrow than we did today. We know that you can make all those things possible through your spirit. We pray that you would do so. And most importantly, we pray that you come and come quickly. And all God's people say, Amen. Alright, ready?